Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When your mom dropped you off, can you just describe how that exchange went? Uh, very emotional. She was very upset. Um, I knew something was off that night. Everything was supposed to change for Melissa Missy Howard on January 6th, 2006. And it did, only not in the way she may have anticipated. After a vicious and highly contentious custody battle, the Crestview, Florida resident was supposed to assume full guardianship over her son that day. And her boyfriend had been dropping hints that he was ready to take their relationship to a new level. From the outside looking in, it seemed as if things were going great for Missy. But privately, she was struggling with fear and anxiety. Acquaintances who had dropped by her home threatened and intimidated her. There were also cars that would park outside the house or follow her, as if they were actively surveilling her. As good as everything was going, Missy had plenty of reason to believe it could all easily take a turn for the worst. And then on January 6th, her whole life changed and came to a violent end. At first, Chris Cadenhead may not have noticed anything unusual the evening of January 6th, 2006. That night, as he had many times before, he was going to visit his girlfriend, Melissa Howard, at her home in Crestview, Florida. And also, like all of those other times, Chris's wife didn't know what he was up to. See, Chris had been cheating on his spouse, Sherry, for about three months. For her part, Missy also knew he was married, but that didn't seem to bother the religious, church-going mother of four. Perhaps the affair seemed all right in her mind, as Chris had told Missy that he planned to leave his wife for her. I was pretty much out the heading out the door, yes, sir. And you had kind of indicated to her, Miss Howard, Miss, Miss Melissa Howard, that you wanted to be with her. Is that right? Yes. Perhaps that's exactly what would have transpired had fate not intervened. That evening, Chris only planned to see Missy for a brief period of time, and she didn't even know he was coming. Chris was on his way out of town for a hunting trip, and he had hoped to surprise Missy by stopping at her place before his long journey began. He rarely came over to Missy's house in the evening, as part of getting away with an affair is finding convenient times to meet up that your partner won't necessarily discover. In Chris's case, he worked as a UPS delivery driver, and he would always take his lunch break right after dropping off packages at Missy's house. That way, he'd have about an hour with her while no one was the wiser. Chris tried calling Missy from the road, but she never picked up. What number were you calling her on? I called her cell phone, and then I believe I called her house as well, and no answer. What did you do when you couldn't reach her? Called her a couple more times and then just kept driving to her house. 
What time roughly did you arrive at Melissa's house? I believe it was 11.13. Upon arriving, Chris was surprised to see that Missy's 15-year-old daughter Carrie was outside, along with her boyfriend, Daniel Bradhauer. This was unusual as it was after Carrie's curfew. In reality, Carrie had actually come home earlier, but when she tried to open the front door, she found that it had been locked. Uh, when we pulled in, uh, we stood in front of the porch for a little bit to say goodbye. Okay. And then um, when we said goodbye, I went to open the door and it was locked and I couldn't get it. How would you normally get in your house after being out on a date? I would just walk in. My mom would wait up for me, so the door was always unlocked. What happened when you realized the door was locked and you couldn't get inside? I called the house phone and her cell phone several times. Did she ever answer? Though the audio briefly cuts out here, when asked if her mother answered, Carrie shook her head no. Like Chris, she couldn't reach Missy, so she'd been waiting outside on the porch with her boyfriend Daniel, who had kindly waited with her so she wouldn't be alone. Now that Chris was also on the scene, he took action. Did you get out of your vehicle? I did. Where did you go? I hollered from my car if they had heard from Missy, and Carrie said that they can't get her to answer the door, um, but we could hear her phone ringing inside. Did you try to get in the house? Uh, we, of course, we turned the doorknob of the front door to see if, if it would jiggle open. Uh, then we went around to the right side of the house. I believe Daniel tried to climb the fence to go look in the back window, but the dog was in the backyard and was, wouldn't let him over, not aggressively, but just wouldn't let him over. So we lifted Carrie over. Again, this entire scenario was unusual. The chocolate lab, Rusty, was an indoor pet. In fact, he only went into the yard when he needed to relieve himself. Missy wouldn't have put him outside for the night any more than she would have locked the front door before her daughter Carrie came home. So, understandably, Carrie was worried. See, we had two uh, doors in the back, and I tried to get in. And since that didn't work, I jumped back over, and Daniel suggested getting a credit card to try and jimmy the front door open. While Daniel attempted to break in through the front door, Chris and Carrie tried everything else they could think of to get Missy's attention from outside. He came back over the fence. Um, we're still calling, you know, pounding on doors and windows. And I went around to the left side of the house to see if her bedroom uh, bathroom light was on, and it wasn't. By the time I turned around and started to head back to the front, Daniel had a... Uh, Jimmy, the front door lock loose with a FedEx card. After Daniel successfully opened the front door, Carrie went in first. Right, so what happened once the door was opened? Um. It's okay, man. Take your time. <laughs> um. Once we were able to open the door, I went into the front foyer and I turned the light on. What did you see once uh, there was better light? My mom lying there. 
Carrie also couldn't help but notice that the house was trashed, like someone had recently fought here. It was too much for the 15-year-old. She ran out of the house in shock and didn't breathe a word of what she had seen to Daniel or Chris. And after she'd sprinted outside, the men ventured into the living room to see for themselves what was waiting inside. Uh, at first, it took a minute for my eyes to adjust. Uh, the TV had a blue light. The whole screen was blue, like the end of a movie. And uh, when my eyes did adjust, I could see Melissa lying on the floor in the living room. What was your reaction when you saw her? At first, I thought she had a seizure or something, or something medically was wrong. Why do you believe that? Just, uh, that was just my first thought. I thought maybe she had fallen or something. I wasn't really sure. Did there come a point where you thought something different had happened? Yes, sir. I walked in, and the closer I got to her, uh, I could tell that there was a pool of blood around her head. She was face down. Chris asked Carrie to dial 911, but she was too upset. So he used her phone to make the call himself. What did you tell the 911 operator? That there was a shooting at 212 Tiffet Court, and a woman had been shot in the head. What were you basing that assessment on? When my eyes focused, I could see uh, Melissa's hair was long and curly, and her hair pulled up around the left side of her neck, and there was just a, a it looked like a bullet hole. Now, to be clear here, Miss Eve had not actually been shot. In fact, she'd been stabbed in the neck. The wounds were so deep and so precise, they'd killed her within minutes. But Chris didn't have any medical or forensic training. He was guessing as best he was able to when first reporting Melissa's injuries. All the while, Chris had to realize this didn't look good. Here he was having an affair and now his illicit girlfriend had suddenly turned up dead. Chris didn't have anything to do with the murder, but if he wanted the police to believe that he was in fact innocent, he needed to come clean. So immediately after he found Missy's body, Chris told his wife about his infidelity. He actually conducted two phone calls at once. While he was reporting the homicide to 911 operators on Carrie's phone, he had his wife on the line on his own phone. You're on 911 in one hand and your wife in the other hand. Yes. He's finding out for the first time that you're having this affair with this woman that's now dead. Is that correct? She didn't know till she was heading up to Crestview, I told her over the phone she had called me again, but yeah, she she didn't know why I was in Crestview or what I was even doing up there. She didn't know what you were doing over at the dead woman's house either, did she? She had no idea. As confusing as it must have been to have both of these highly charged conversations simultaneously, this proved to be a good move on Chris's part. Police quickly ruled him out as a suspect, and Chris's wife told them, he came home from work around 9 or 9.15 p.m. and was home until he left for his hunting trip, the same trip on which he found Missy's body. The investigators presumably concluded Chris couldn't possibly have killed Missy during that time. Luckily, however, detectives had plenty of other possible suspects. Roughly three years before her murder, Missy had divorced her then-husband, Brian Howard, and the split kicked off a bitter custody battle over their son, Taylor. 
Missy hired attorney Janice Burke to help her navigate that dispute. She had gone through a divorce the year prior to, and um, I did not represent her in that. In, in that particular case, she, uh, she and her former husband had a child together, um, Taylor. And pursuant to their final judgment they agreed to, he had primary custody of their son. And she came to see me in February of 2004, I think it was, to, um, she wanted to see about modifying the custody arrangement so that the child would be living primarily with her. How would you describe um, the custody case that you were representing Ms. Howard for? The one, the contested one that I did, yes. is that what you're asking me about? Um, it was, I think a lot of people would probably refer to it as ugly and nasty. It, it was not good. It seems Brian's behavior was particularly unsettling. First, when courts ruled in Missy's favor, he flat out refused to comply with the new arrangements, which meant Missy and Janice had to drag him before a judge a second time. And even though Janice had nothing to do with Brian outside of her work, she felt unsafe around him. We had um, several hearings before the final hearing to decide if custody should be modified. And in each of, at the conclusion of each of those hearings, I did ask for um, bailiff or law enforcement to escort me to my car, which is unusual for me. Janice wasn't the only one who was nervous about Brian's behavior. Missy mentioned to a few of her friends that she was afraid of her ex-husband, who was going to great lengths to intimidate her. Even her children could sense that Missy was growing uneasy. Her daughter Carrie knew exactly how dire the situation was. My mother was going through a custody battle with Brian Howard. He had made several threats on her life. Later, Missy's son Taylor spoke about the situation on the stand as well. He confirmed for the courts that his mother had installed security cameras and even an alarm system in and outside of the house. And that was because she was scared of some individuals. Is that right? Uh, scared or uh, I, I don't know if I'd call it scared, but. Was she, te was she taking and recording phone conversations with your dad, Brian Howard? Yes, sir. And plenty of others. Given how heated the custody battle was, Brian was an obvious suspect. But much like Chris Cadenhead, the police eventually ruled Brian out. The night of Missy's murder, her ex-husband was at a crowded birthday party, and there were numerous witnesses who were able to corroborate his alibi. So, in very short order, police had eliminated Missy's ex-husband and boyfriend as potential culprits. They'd have to expand their net to identify the real killer, and they knew it would likely take some time. But they might not ever have predicted that Melissa Howard and her family would have to wait 13 long years for justice. This episode is proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. You know, as the holiday season is upon us and I look back at pictures of my kids over the last few years, I can't help but realize how fast they're growing up. But that means I'm getting older too. That's why planning for my family's financial security and future has become a top priority. Making sure we're prepared and have enough life insurance in the event something unexpected happens is crucial. And Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to get the protection you need. That's right for your family. 
Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Yeah, you heard that right. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply and they have a 30-day money-back guarantee so you can cancel at any time. Going without life insurance is one risk you shouldn't take with your own family. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Rocket Money. Okay, imagine this. You log into the Rocket Money app to check your recurring monthly subscriptions and bam, your family's auto insurance policy premium is up nearly $60 per month with this most recent renewal. Yeah, spoiler alert, that's me this month. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. I love it because I can keep track of my monthly expenses, especially when they change unexpectedly. And whether it's tipping you off to a recent change in price or alerting that you have a subscription you completely forgot you signed up for. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. There's no more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money literally does all of the work for you. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Rocketmoney.com slash invisible. On the evening of January 4th, 2006, Melissa Howard had only 48 hours left to live. That night, her attorney, Janice Burke, owed Missy a call back after missing a conversation with her the day before. Well, because it was dark, and I, I remember calling her after hours. I was in I was in Defeniac Springs, either at my in-laws or my mother's. I can't remember which place, um, because my in-laws and my mom all live in Defeniac. And I needed to call her. What was the reason for you calling her? Because she had called the day prior. And you returned her call prior? I had not returned her call. And I knew that the 6th was coming up as far as switching custody. When Missy finally answered the call, Janice realized that they were about to discuss something far more urgent and even dangerous than simple custody arrangements. She was crying. She was upset. I was attempting to get her to tell me what was going on. She was not hysterical, so I could I could understand her. But you know how you get the feeling someone's headed that way? I, I just got the impression that she was about to not be able to talk. She was that upset when I called her. Missy was grounded enough to describe what had happened, but she was on the verge of losing it. So Janice tried to calm her down while asking why she had become so unnerved. Once she was collected enough to talk, Missy said, I knew this was going to happen. Understandably, Janice had questions about what exactly Missy had known was going to happen. Did she elaborate on what that was? Well, after I asked her and said, you knew what was going to happen. What did she, she say? She said, I knew Brian was going to send one of his men over to scare me. 
At the time, it was difficult for Janice to solicit much more detail from Missy, because as she told the story, she became increasingly shaken, which isn't surprising given what Missy did convey. Well, I I asked her why was he there, what did he do, and things of that nature, because she was getting to the point where she couldn't talk to me. And um, she said, you need to let that boy be with his father. Um, you need to let this go. I asked her if he hurt her. I don't know if you want me to go that far. If he had, she wanted to know what to do. And I said, if you feel threatened, you need to call 911 if he's, and I honestly don't know the result of that. Janice asked which of Brian's friends had come over, and Missy said it was David Holbrook Jr., a man who went by his middle name, Russell. This wasn't the first time Missy had mentioned Russell's name to Janice, and the latest encounter immediately set off red flags. Russell was a friend of Missy's ex-husband, Brian, and Missy had warned her daughter, Carrie, about him as well. Russell was not allowed out of our house. Um... He was considered one of Brian Howard's friends. Although Russell was effectively banned from Missy's house, that didn't stop him from just dropping by in the past. She said that she had caught him at her house before with a gas can, and I was to never let him nor any of Brian's friends at our home, inside the home, ever. On the 4th, when Missy told Janice that Russell had come over, It sounds like he didn't just stand on her porch and talk to her. He was much more aggressive than that. The more she talked about it, the more upset she became. He was in her house. She told me he came in her house. And we don't need to rely solely on Janice's testimony to know for sure that Russell was harassing Missy. Later on that same day, Missy drove Taylor to his father Brian's house. And Taylor saw a vehicle he recognized. Did you see Russell or his truck on January 4th of 2006? Yes, sir. When did you see it? Uh, When we were pulling into my dad's neighborhood and my mom was dropping me off. I seen it at the corner when we pulled in. And I acknowledged the fact that I seen it, told my dad as well. And uh, when he went outside to look, he said it was gone. My mom was gone as well. Missy also described an encounter to her best friend, Jennifer, Now, Jennifer told reporters with the NWF Daily News that Russell went to Missy's house to try to scare her a few weeks before the murder, which would put the other surprise appearance before the one Missy told her attorney Janice about days before the killing. It's unclear if Jennifer or Janice have forgotten key details about the timeline or if they heard about two separate threatening encounters altogether. What we do know is that Jennifer says the conversation left Missy feeling shaken, just as Janice would later testify. Perhaps Missy was still unsettled two days later, when she dropped Taylor off with his father Brian so they could attend a birthday dinner together. Taylor couldn't help but notice that his mother was acting odd. Now, when your mom dropped you off, can you just describe how that exchange went? Uh, very emotional. She was very upset. Um, I knew something was off that night. Um, uh, my dad and her, my dad stayed in his vehicle and they exchanged words across the parking lot. Um, I didn't want to leave her. She was really upset and um, I wound up getting in the truck with my dad and then we left and went to La Rumba's first. 
This was the very last time Taylor would ever see his mother alive. In light of all of Russell Holbrook's behavior prior to the murder, it makes sense that when police investigated the homicide, they took a close look at him. And when they did, they found that unlike Missy's boyfriend and ex-husband, Russell didn't have a solid alibi for the day and time she was killed. He was at a party for a while, but he left before Missy's estimated time of death. And when they called him in for questioning about three weeks after the murder, he gave contradictory statements. When interrogators asked if Russell knew Missy, he answered, We didn't see each other all the time like I did Brian. The only time I saw her was special occasions. The police followed up by asking Russell when was the last time he had actually seen Missy. He answered that it had been at a birthday gathering for one of Brian's children. He also added, It was a little bit of a year, maybe two years before. Understandably, the police were skeptical. They had already heard from other witnesses that Russell had shown up uninvited at Missy's house the Wednesday before she was killed, and maybe other times before that. They knew Russell was lying to them now. When the detectives asked for clarification, Russell admitted that he had talked to Missy more recently. He believed she was in touch with his ex-wife, Allison, and Russell wanted more information about his former spouse. Still, investigators weren't buying it. They applied a little pressure, asking him to explain the discrepancy between his initial account and what those other witnesses had claimed. And when confronted with this new information, Russell instantly changed his story. I went over there to try and see if Brian was home. I was trying to figure out if Allison was there, so I was trying to get a hold of Brian, and then I saw Missy come by, and I saw she had the kids in the car. I figured she was dropping Taylor off, so so we left. This was not the only time Russell changed his story with police. They also asked about his whereabouts on the night Missy was murdered. Russell assured the investigators that his brother Mike was with him all evening, and at least this detail could be confirmed. His daughter Danielle testified that she went to a party with her father and uncle, and later Mike rode in the car with them and her father dropped her off. But she also noted that she got home fairly early that night. Do you remember roughly when you left the party? I don't remember exactly. Okay. Do you remember roughly when you got to um, your house at Staff Road? Somewhere around 9 o'clock. Now, recall, we know Melissa was still alive shortly before 9 o'clock because she was on the phone with Chris Cadenhead about that time, which means Russell's kids still couldn't provide him with an alibi for the time of the murder. Only his brother Mike was with him at that point. So police asked him where he was the rest of the night, and he answered that he was at a party. But when investigators asked if he could prove his whereabouts, he admitted that he could not. Russell even admitted there were no photographs of him taken at the gathering either, because according to him, he was the one taking all of the pictures. But when Russell had the opportunity to show police all of these photos he allegedly took, he couldn't produce a single one. So then he told police he left the party early enough that his kids could be home by around 9 p.m., which was consistent with his daughter's testimony. 
He said that after he dropped the children off, he and Mike headed to an Exxon station to pick up some cough medicine. Then, when the store didn't have the product he was looking for, they swung by a Walmart instead. Supposedly, he and his brother Mike were able to finish the errand quickly, and Russell was home by about 9.30. Understandably, this left the police dubious. That's a lot of errands to run and a lot of driving in a fairly short amount of time. So, Russell changed his story yet again. Now, when he explained when he left the party, he said, quote, I remember we were getting ready to walk out the door at 8.20. I said, come on, we've got to go. Then, in the very next sentence, he changed his timeline again. Now, he, Mike, and the kids didn't leave at 8.20, but this time at about 8.40. He also added that now he believed he got home sometime around 10 p.m. Now, we can confirm at least part of what he said. A surveillance camera at a local Walmart did show Russell and Mike in the store just after 9.30 p.m. on the night of January 6th, which still doesn't explain what they were up to between 9 and 9.30, which is within the approximate window that Missy was likely killed. The clip shows Russell and Mike at an aisle. Mike crouches to get a better look at something on a low shelf. Russell then stands up behind him for a moment and then paces away. After two steps, he spreads his palms in front of him, like he's just noticed there's something on his hands. He strides back towards Mike, then makes another circuit, nervous circling, if you will. Finally, he wipes his palms against one another like he's trying to get something off of them. It's hard to say exactly what he was doing, but investigators thought it looked a lot like he was potentially wiping blood off of his hands. But there's no law against cleaning your hands in a Walmart, and the police couldn't prove it really was blood that Russell was scrubbing off. Nor did they have any hard evidence that placed him at the scene of the crime. In fact, Missy's house had a notable lack of physical evidence in general, which left investigators puzzled. On January 8th, two days after the homicide, detectives were already openly calling for information in the local newspapers. At one point, an investigator hinted to the press that Missy's murderer may have been a professional. The crime scene was just that clean. Still, they could make some educated guesses. The police didn't believe the murder was a robbery gone wrong, as the culprit didn't take anything of value, just a beanbag and Missy's diary. In fact, to this day, it's unclear why the murderer chose to grab these two items in particular, and their absence certainly didn't produce any new leads for investigators. The killer apparently did such a good job of covering their tracks, the year came and went without the police making an arrest, and then the next year and the year after that. Missy's friends and family had to go on without any new answers or progression toward justice, all the while they grappled with profound grief and trauma. Chris Cadenhead, Missy's boyfriend, the one who had discovered her body was deeply disturbed by what he had experienced. Did you... Did your route normally include... Your UPS route normally include the area where Melissa Howard lived? Yes. Did anything change after her murder? I couldn't go down there for months and luckily I had a couple drivers next to me that would take those two streets off of me and deliver them for me. And uh, finally, I got to where I had to just 
quit depending on them and putting more work on them. So I finally got the courage up to deliver down there again. This episode is proudly brought to you by StoryWorth. Look, if you're at all like me and you're constantly searching for that meaningful, incredible gift to give a loved one during the holidays, look no further than StoryWorth. Seriously, this is it. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you like to find out? After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved ones' incredible stories, including photographs, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Now, last year, I got StoryWorth for my mother-in-law and actually ordered two copies of the book so that I'll have them to give to my daughters one day with all of Grandma Barb's incredible stories. But this year, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm actually going to answer the questions myself and start sort of a running log of my own memories for my children to have one day. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com invisible and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash invisible to save $10 on your first purchase. This episode of Invisible Choir is also proudly brought to you by Wild Grain. Okay, Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and even artisanal pastries. Yeah, seriously, Wild Grain is awesome. Every item literally bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, and there's no thawing required. Now, the team at Wild Grain just sent me a new box with so much incredibly delicious stuff inside, including my wife's absolute favorite giant chocolate chunk cookies, the plain sourdough bread, which is fantastic with soup, and my favorite, the buttery rich croissants. Now, I love Wild Grain for the simple fact that it's easy and convenient, and like I said, every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. Again, no thawing required. And you can now fully customize your Wild Grain box so you can get any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries you like. And if you want a box of all bread, all pasta, or all pastries, you can have it. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com choir to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box, and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com choir. That's wildgrain.com forward slash choir. Or you can use promo code choir at checkout. After Chris Caden had confessed the affair to his wife, the pair divorced, but would later reconcile and remarry. Likewise, Missy's children grew up, graduated high school, and entered adulthood without their mother. Life went on, even while the investigation stalled out. At some point, Missy's case went cold, and no major breaks would come until May of 2015, several months after the ninth anniversary of her homicide. That year, investigators with Florida's first judicial court collaborated with Crestview's police department to reopen Melissa's case. In the near decade since Missy's murder, investigative technology had advanced considerably, and officials suspected they might be able to uncover new leads that weren't readily available back in 2006. 
Specifically, investigators found DNA on the shirt Missy was wearing when she was murdered. DNA profile that was not hers. It didn't take long for them to compare the genetic material with Russell's and determine that there was, in fact, a match. Finally, police didn't just have evidence putting him at the scene of the crime. They had him touching, or at least close enough, to leave genetic material on Missy's shirt during or before the murder. So, on November 8, 2016, David Russell Holbrook was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. When David Russell Holbrook eventually went to trial, his counsel presented some powerful counter-arguments to pick apart the state prosecution's case. Even the DNA was questionable by the assistant state attorney's own admission, as some of the samples they had collected from Missy's shirt were contaminated. The science of this contamination is complicated, but a supervisor from that lab, Amanda Julian, explained the situation in simple terms. We felt that's what led to the contamination event, that the scissors hadn't been properly decontaminated. Um, scissors aren't uh, generally a disposable item, so they need to be you know, cleaned in between usage. And uh, we feel that that's what caused the event. Basically, an employee used the same pair of scissors to cut material that was important to a separate investigation. And she also snipped a bit of fabric off of Missy's shirt. And apparently, the scissors had not been appropriately cleaned in between uses. When the employee looked at the DNA results from Missy's sweater, she realized that the results were consistent with that other case, that the genetic material from the other sample had gotten mixed in with Missy's. And in an effort to get a clean sample, she cut off a different part of Missy's shirt, this time a lot more carefully. In fact, the forensic lab instituted new, stricter cleaning procedures as a direct result of this incident. That's how seriously they took this grave mistake. In the courtroom, prosecutors argued that the contamination didn't matter because they weren't using the corrupted materials in their case. They had other clean samples that still matched Russell's DNA, at least mostly. But they also had their problems. Even the experts couldn't tell for certain if these samples contained two people's DNA or even possibly three. However, they did know that one of those genetic profiles matched Melissa Howard. But the other evidence, assumed to be that from the killer, might implicate either one or possibly two murderers, depending on how a person chose to interpret it. That's where things get complicated. Because when the DNA analyst looked at the genetic information, she found it was very similar to Russell's, but not exactly identical. That could mean one of two things. Either the parts that matched came from Russell himself, while the parts that didn't match came from the other unidentified second killer. Or if the sample had come from a single individual, it wasn't Russell. It couldn't be if their genes even had minor differences. So the analyst did another type of test. This one also didn't conclude that the sample came from Russell specifically. But that result did show that the genetic material could have only come from a male member of Russell's family if not Russell himself, it would have come from his brother, uncle, father, son, or so on. The prosecution's DNA expert testified that she felt the evidence was enough to confirm Russell's presence at the crime scene. 
And as far as this hypothetical second killer, well, as of this recording, no one but Russell has ever been named as a suspect or charged with Melissa Howard's murder. But we think it worth reminding listeners that Russell did insist that his brother Mike was with him the entire evening. So just let that sink in for a moment. Either way, clearly there were a lot of open questions about the DNA evidence. Prosecutors assured jurors that even if they ignored the genetic data, there was plenty more evidence to demonstrate Russell's guilt, like his changing stories during police interrogations, or his attempt to intimidate Missy before her murder. Then there's also that video of him and his brother in Walmart, the one where he appears to be scrubbing blood off his hands. They also highlighted their belief that Russell was one of the few people capable of stabbing Missy to death that night, even though he only had a window of about 30 minutes to do so from the last time Missy was known to be alive, until those cameras filmed him at Walmart. Ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Howard was 5 feet 6 inches and weighed 115 pounds. You've had the opportunity to observe the defendant. He's much bigger. We know he's military trained and he likes knives. Talk about the, the knives that he has, the ones he's a special one from the Air Force. It would not take him long at all to subdue and kill Melissa Howard. He does not need hours upon hours to carry this out. He can go in, do it, and get out. In the end, all of these arguments were enough that in 2019, the jury convicted David Russell Holbrook of murder. He was subsequently sentenced to life in prison. We can only hope the verdict offered some sense of long-delayed closure for Melissa Howard's family. Missy's daughter, Christy Winkler, spoke about her heavy emotions when she addressed the court, reading aloud her victim impact statement. Um, I'm, like he said, my name's Christy Winkler, the daughter of Melissa Howard, and I'm speaking on behalf of my uh, sister, Carrie Winkler and Taylor Howard, and I just want to thank everyone here for their time and the commitment for FDOE, the Crestview Police Department, the State Attorney's Office for finally getting justice for us. As anyone can expect, this has just been an awful ordeal. We haven't been with our mother for 13 years while he gets to go free and be with his children and his grandchildren and Our mother missed so many stuff, all of our graduations, me becoming a nurse, following in her footsteps. Her first grandchild born in December, my upcoming wedding in August, and everything else that a mother should never, never have to miss, let alone the children ever have to go through because someone has such disregard for human life. I just want to thank everyone again that has put so much time into finally getting answers for us. Even though it took a little bit of time, we just want to appreciate everyone for this. Sending Russell Holbrook to prison couldn't answer some of those remaining lingering questions, like that of the motive. Russell was friends with Brian Howard, but by some accounts, they weren't particularly close. Even Russell's actual best friend, Robbie Davis, confirmed that while he testified for the prosecution. You and Russell were best friends, is that correct? Absolutely, yes, sir. And back in 2006, when Melissa Howard was killed, Russell and Brian really weren't that close, were they? No, sure didn't seem that way. 
And in fact, back during the time when Melissa Howard was killed in 2006, Russell's soon-to-be ex-wife, Allison, was staying at Brian's house. Is that correct? Yes, sir, it is. Later on, Russell's attorney insisted that his client and Brian weren't close enough for Russell to commit murder on his behalf. Of course, we know Missy felt otherwise. She'd frequently described Russell as one of Brian's friends. And this was one of the prime reasons she was so afraid of him. Arguably, it might not have mattered how close Russell and Brian were, or if they even identified with one another to any degree. In her dissertation entitled Social Networks of Intimate Partner Violence Perpetrators, PhD candidate Wendy Elaine Viola noted that it's common for domestic abusers to have few friends, and if they associate with anyone, it's likely to be with other abusers, or at the very least, with people who are okay with or even supportive of abusive behavior. That same study found that in this sort of social circle, if one person behaves violently, their friends are more likely to commit sexual assaults or domestic violence themselves. And we have to highlight additional research published in the 2021 issue of the Journal of Interpersonal Violence. The study found that when people hear or see evidence that a friend has committed acts of intimate partner violence, they are more likely to excuse the perpetrator than if they heard similar reports about a complete stranger. Basically, if you know and like someone who abuses their significant other, you may have a knee-jerk inclination to make excuses on their behalf. Now, Brian Howard hasn't been convicted of any form of violence against Melissa Howard, but regardless of his actual behavior, it seems people believed he was at least capable of hurting his ex-wife. It is, therefore, possible that his friend Russell picked up on this and somehow felt emboldened to kill Missy on his behalf. Of course, we won't pretend to know exactly what's going on in Russell's mind, and it's possible this is entirely speculation. But some research and evidence suggest it's at least a possibility. And before we move on from this question of Russell's potential motive, we want to include one more brief note about Brian Howard. We know from Missy's daughter Carrie that Brian threatened Missy before her death and that Missy considered the threats credible. Fast forward three years after Russell's conviction in August of 2022, Brian Howard was arrested. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Department issued a statement claiming that Brian had threatened his girlfriend and her family. She also found a gun hidden in his vehicle, a firearm that he was not legally permitted to possess as he was a convicted felon from a previous battery. As a result of the incident, the woman subsequently filed for a restraining order. We do want to note that Brian has never formally been charged in relation to Missy's murder, and he is presumed innocent until proven guilty of his later allegedly threatening behavior. Sadly, although Melissa Howard recognized the danger her ex-husband and his friends reportedly posed, she still couldn't escape a tragic, untimely death. After her murder, her boyfriend, children, and uncounted friends, neighbors, and family all had to grapple with her unsolved homicide for 13 long years. David Russell Holbrook Jr. was finally brought to justice, and while we can't say if it brought closure or peace to the survivors, 
we can at least take comfort in the fact that he is now paying for his crimes. Of course, the many details of this case, most notably the disputed DNA results, mean there are still many open questions about the way Missy died. And as of this recording, there don't seem to be any clear-cut signs that Melissa Howard's murder is still an open investigation. It is possible police are still searching for that second culprit, but if they are, they aren't drawing much press attention to it. And that's the frustrating thing about justice. Sometimes it arrives staggeringly late and incomplete. Other times it doesn't come at all. The United States is currently breaking records in terms of the number of homicide cases that remain unsolved, and cold cases specifically, number in the hundreds of thousands. There are countless people just like Melissa, waiting for their killers to be identified and charged. Some will never face their day in court. In the meantime, all we can do is keep advocating for those who have been lost, that they not also be forgotten.